0: Now from the Milken Institute, responding to COVID-19, conversations with Mike Milken.
1: 60% of the world is going to get digitized by 2022. Six out of the seven jobs of the future have not been created yet. The future of workplaces and workforce are going to change significantly. The change was gradual for many years, and it's going to become sudden. That's
0: Ravi Kumar S. He's the president of Infosys, a digital services and consulting company. How do we gear up for an upcoming workplace revolution? Who will comprise this new workforce? And what skills will these workers need? Ravi Kumar S. has definite ideas. He spoke with Milken Institute and Faster Cures chairman Mike Milken on Tuesday, June 16th. Ravi, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you, Mike, for this opportunity. Always a pleasure and inspiration talking to you.
0: Many people around the world are not familiar with Emphasis. You have a quarter of a million employees. Today, you have 25,000 employees in the United States, and you view it as your greatest growth market. What is the mission of Emphasis? Since its inception 35 plus years ago, we are in a mission to
1: build lifelong learners and create a sustainable talent model for digital needs of the future. We do believe employers have a role to be educators. Digital capabilities have very short life. And we are getting into an era where individuals have to work in multiple professions in their life, and therefore lifelong learning is going to become very critical. And hence, the dual state of educating and employing is what the future for large enterprises will be.
0: So when I think of the company, it is one of the strongest companies in the world financially. You have approximately a $40 billion equity market cap yep. and no debt and $3 billion in cash and are creating one of the largest educational centers in the world for a for-profit public company in Indianapolis today. What's happening in Indianapolis?
1: So Mike, three years ago, we started this journey in the US. Our belief is 60% of the world is gonna get digitized by 2022. The future of workplaces and workforce, the three dimensions of an enterprise, are gonna change significantly. The change was gradual, but the pandemic in some ways and the post-pandemic era, the change is going to be all of a sudden. Six out of the seven jobs of the future have not been created yet. And we do believe we have that opportunity to build capabilities for large enterprises as well as for ourselves. So we are replicating a finishing school or a corporate university, as we call it, in Indianapolis. The idea is to actually hire from schools and colleges, hire for capability building, reskill talent from large enterprises, and actually build digital skills of the future. And that's what broadly we're wanting to do. And we did this very effectively in India. We have the largest corporate training university in India. It's a 500 acre campus we built 30 years ago, and we are now replicating everything we did back in the US.
0: So when I think about our challenges this year, can we bring hope? Can we bring equal opportunity? And I think in many ways, you're focusing on community colleges. With the cost of a university escalating today, let's talk about how we can reduce the burden of student loans and by giving people an opportunity for a high-quality job and skills that will allow them upward mobility in the world of the future.
1: In the United States, in the last 25 years, the cost of education has gone up by 150%. In the same period, inflation has gone up by roughly around 45 to 50%. So the cost of education has outpaced three times the cost of inflation. 5.5 million students go to community colleges in the U.S. Two-thirds of the workforce out of the 160 million workforce in the U.S., actually it doesn't have an undergrad degree. They either have an associate degree or a high school diploma. And that divide, in many ways, digital capabilities, new age capabilities, digital backbone jobs could have potentially bridged. But the virus itself is going to accelerate the digitization of enterprises. And the debate around the divide is actually going to trigger an acceleration of adoption of community colleges into digital skill capability building. I do believe that digital backbone jobs will blur the line between white and blue collar jobs, as we call them in the past. The debate of inequality, which is all over the world, is gonna trigger that sudden shift. 70 to 80% of students who go to community colleges are from the underserved communities. They actually work part-time in two or three small jobs. They have an American dream in their minds, but they still don't find an opportunity in the corporate world. I hope corporations will start to look at skills rather than degrees to hire. Interestingly, Mike, the half-life of skills has gone down, which really means you don't need a four-year degree to be in a digital job. You need a lifelong learner. And I would believe this is our single biggest chance to bridge the divide using education as the
0: equalizer. We have been quite concerned for the last few decades on the burden of student loans. And as you've pointed out, effectively, the dramatic increase in post-secondary education has been met by the government loaning money, not having any payments or interest payments when you're in school, and then a person discovering that they owe collectively in the United States a trillion dollars or more. And even if they go bankrupt, they can't get rid of their student loan. And now, for maybe the rest of their life, they're going to have to figure out how to pay off that loan. And as you've pointed out, the skills required for a job here in the 21st century require some knowledge of technology. And they might not have gotten that education in their four year university. Since two thirds of the population doesn't have a four year degree, we need to give them hope and opportunity. And what you've been able to do is create a formula that gives everyone the skills needed for re-education and opportunity in the future.
1: He created a model of learn, earn, and work with us, which essentially means you learn as you work with us. We convert those experiential learning into credits for them to actually progress and get undergrad degrees as they work with us, because the world still doesn't accept individuals to apply for jobs without undergrad degrees. And we think during this transitionary period, we should equip them with what they need, even if they don't work for Infosys. So that was one big learning. The second big learning, Mike, this goes back to what manufacturing industry did in the industrial revolution. They created an apprentice model, which is very popular in Asia and Europe. The apprentice model was to handhold as you learn and um, organizations have to allow apprentice model in digital jobs. So we created an apprentice model, and these are mostly from the underserved communities where you need mentorship and you need soft skills enablement. So our belief is as you hire from the schools, as you hire from associate degree holders from community colleges or with uh, high school diplomas, you need to do hand-holding and we believe that template which we have built is replicable in across the U.S. and it's replicable with state governments. So we are helping some of the state governments where we have set up our centers to leverage this template of learn, earn, and work and credentialize the learning. The future is going to move to micro learning on mega platforms. That's what education is going to be for the future. I completely agree with what you said. Student loans is a vicious cycle. Because student loans were available, universities had no incentive to reduce the cost of education. And what really happened is nobody really competed with universities, while EduTech companies like Coursera, Udacity tried competing with universities, but they really couldn't. I think this is an inflection point. If the corporations across the U.S. start to hire on skills, start to hire from community colleges, don't look for degrees, I think we're going to see a revolution in how you want to hire from the market.
0: Well, I developed a close friendship with a man named Gary Becker, who won a Nobel Prize in 1992. But I began reading his work. In the mid-1960s, and his views that the number one asset was the potential of a human being, human capital, and so the secret to countries is the skills of their individuals. It was a hundred years or so ago when Henry Ford said, "You can burn down my factories giving me. My people will rebuild and will be stronger." If there was ever a company defined on the skill set of its people, it's emphasis what has happened during the coronavirus? How did you continue your mentoring, your training, your education, particularly in parts of the world where the infrastructure in their home, such as India today, might not have allowed them to do what they could do at work? How have you operated what has happened to the company in the last three to four months? So my
1: 95% of our workforce in less than 10 days went virtual and supported mission-critical work for our clients, and that happened very seamlessly. We continue to hire, we continue to train, and we continue to internship. In fact, we have one of the largest internships across the world. That's because we were always enabled on an online digital platform for learning. So. Our ability to hire did not change. Our ability to support our clients did not change. Pretty much all our infrastructure was on the cloud. We were enabled for virtual operations, virtual on-demand, as I call it. But I do believe the bridge and the divide between rural and urban America, where jobs are, you want to see that shift to rural America, because it doesn't matter which part of the U.S. you belong to. It actually doesn't matter which part of the world you belong to, as long as you are actually delivering to work as long as you can hold the productivity even without coming to work. Most of our clients have started to tell me that two thirds of their workforce will not come back to their workplace post the coronavirus. And that to me is the way work is gonna be redefined. And it's an opportunity for us to bridge the divide between geographies in the U.S., states in the U.S. where there are plenty of jobs and states in the U.S. there aren't. And this is gonna be a game changer One additional shift which I have seen is the embrace of the gig economy into corporate jobs. The gig economy was restricted to the right-sharing economy, as they call it. That shift is now going to happen to corporate work because work has become very micro, very modular, and you deliver work around the week, and you deliver work 24 by 7, and therefore you are going to see an embrace of a gig worker, in corporate jobs, which helps us to amplify the kind of workforce which is available for the future.
0: Let's talk about some of the challenges you and I have talked about over the years and which have been brought to fore during the events of the first half of 2020. It is estimated at this time that maybe a quarter to a third of all jobs that have been lost will not come back. Therefore, to give hope to people that you've outlined, we need to let them know how they get into the, quote, gig economy, where jobs will be. The need to create millions of new jobs in America is required. And people that are 35 might not be going back to school physically. So as I see it, this is a path that you've created. We've gone from the lowest unemployment to the highest unemployment in less than six months. We've re-emphasized the concern about racial bias and opportunities based on race, possibly based on religion, based on whether you're a man or a woman today. But in many ways, by focusing on community colleges, you're really focusing heavily on the minority population in the United States and giving them a chance to rise up. When you're training a person digitally... No one knows what the color of your skin is, no one knows what your religion is, and they're very focused on skills. Let's think about these challenges, not just to the U.S. society, but to societies around the world, as you try to communicate the mission of emphasis and quite possibly substantially increase your hiring. So Mike, that's a great question. In many ways, the stimulus
1: package and what the government is doing for unemployment insurance is not going to structurally change skills for them to permanently get jobs. It's going to give them a temporary relief. 35 million jobs have been lost because of the pandemic. 70% I'm told are jobs for people who don't have an undergrad degree. Most employers today want ready-made skills. Ready-made skills are not available we are going to be in a dichotomous situation. We have 35 million people who are not employed, and we have hundreds and millions of jobs which continue to stay open because we don't find people. Who's going to create that bridge? That bridge I'm talking about is of people who have to move work streams, who have to move industries. When you move work streams, when you move industries, just an online training is not enough. You have to handhold and you have to you have to give them mentorship, and you have to give them on-the-job training. And the limited period where you do on-the-job training, I would believe the local states and the federal government can play a role in funding those apprentices, so that employers find themselves incentivized to create those jobs. That is, I think, the magic formula. Throwing money on this problem is not enough. It's not going to structurally change the skills of the future, but... Giving the support needed in the transitionary period of on-the-job training to the stipends you pay the employers who are actually employing those people because they're taking a bet, I think is the need for the state governments. If they have to really divert those funds, they should divert those funds to the -the on-the-job training, the online learning, the instructor-led learning, and finally allowing those enterprises to be incentivized because they are taking a bet on skills of the future.
0: We are all familiar with the story of teaching a person how to fish rather than giving them fish. So you just told us that story in a different way, that continuing to bring fish to people is not the solution. Teaching them how to fish is the solution. As companies around the world, organizations, nonprofit, for-profit, outsource to Emphasis and others, they don't ask you, what are the degrees of your employees? They are focused on your ability to do the work, create it, solve the problems. So it seems like outsourcing will accelerate the opportunity for people with skills, since the job is to meet the needs, not necessarily to solve that problem. I'd like to address another issue. Emphasis is its employees. It's the services and the work they do for companies and organizations and governments around the world. What did you do to protect your own employees?
1: We made sure that we keep our employees' health and employees' safety the topmost priority. In fact, our employees were stranded in different countries because they couldn't go back home. We made sure that we give them local support to them and their families to stay as long as they can. And we worked with the governments to get them back to their homes as safely as we can. A lot of our employees work at client sites, and at client sites, there's always a challenge because some clients were working in their offices, and our employees had, to, had the decision to be made whether they have to go to work or not. And we took that call that if it isn't safe enough, we will work with your clients to tell them why we cannot service them coming to their premises, but service them from our homes. And as long as we can service them from homes, it shouldn't matter for them. So that has been our priority. We were very keen to look at mental health. That was a very important aspect of, uh, it was not just physical health, it was mental health as well. A lot of uh, employees were very anxious. So we ensured that our communication was almost 10 times more than we do otherwise. I think we should over communicate to the point where people start believing that there is somebody available behind to support you in the process.
0: You touched on mental health. We are quite concerned and have been at the Milken Institute and our Center for Public Health has been very focused on this issue. You can understand the uncertainty today when you survey people, let's say in the United States, a lot of young people do not think that their life will be better than their parents. We've talked about some of the issues, student loan burden, but also the fact that there are not jobs for life, so they don't know what their job's going to be in the future. Let's talk about your own family. How have you done there?
1: I had a baby in February. So this is my first child, and she was born just before the coronavirus. So I spent a lot of time at work, but I spent a lot of time at home. So I would say that was a silver lining for me. I had spent a ton of time with my newborn baby girl. I live in New York, so it's been most impacted. And plus, you live in compact apartments, so you could get frustrated by the fact that you can't even walk out. But I would say I've never felt more gratitude for what I have in these times than ever before. And that I believe every one of us who has gone through this period would find themselves an immense amount of gratitude for the small things we always ignored. I would say this crisis has been a big learning for me. It's a big learning on how as humans, we all have to work in striving to bridge the divide between the haves and the have-nots and striving to raise hope. I've never found myself thinking more about raising hope than I have done so during this crisis.
0: I've had this view for 50 years that doing good is good business. And I think you've captured that. And I think This crisis gets us focused, as you've said, on what's important. We are excited about your daughter being born during this period of time. We're excited for your family. And we are so grateful for the mission of your company and its focus, which can change the course of history for millions of people and give them hope and upward mobility. So good health to you. And I look forward, Ravi, to spending time together in person in the next few months.
1: Thank you, Mike. Thank you for inspiring us to do better and inspiring us to be more purposeful. Thank you again for this opportunity and thank you for this friendship.
0: Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or milkeninstitute.org podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.